Amen. Well, if you will, open up your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 will be our text this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day as we walk through this chapter over the course of the next couple weeks. Uh, as we've already mentioned this morning, we're at the place in 2 Samuel where uh, David has sinned with Bathsheba. We looked uh, a couple weeks ago at how uh, David was tempted and how when we're tempted, uh, we have a choice as to whether we're going to feed that temptation or flee from that temptation. And we saw David feed his temptation. He saw Bathsheba. He lusted after her. He inquired about her. Uh, he found out that she was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. We talked about how Eliam was the son of one of his most trusted advisors, Ahithophel. And so Ahithophel's granddaughter, Bathsheba, he looks at, he pursues, he takes her. And as a result of his sin with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant. David attempts to cover his sin and that attempt fails and leads him to even greater sin. And we looked at how when faced with our sin, uh, we can either confess it or we can try to cover it. And she, he tried to cover it. And so as we walk through 2 Samuel chapter 11, we just walk through the fall of David. Uh, things will never be the same for him. He, he will be forgiven. Uh, God will certainly forgive him. But the consequence of his sin will follow him and his family all the days of his life. And yet we see hope as we consider David's story. Because David, of course, points us towards a greater king. Uh, towards a king who never fails, towards our King Jesus. And so my hope and prayer over these next couple weeks as we look at chapter 12 and we look at how God deals with David's sin, and my hope is that we would ha have greater hope that we place in the gospel of Jesus. That, that God would expose in my life and in your life areas that are not pleasing to him, ways we are in sin, places that we are dangerously close to doing what David has done, that we might repent and flee to the cross. And so we're going to look now at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, we're going to cover the first half of this chapter today and go down through the beginning of verse 15. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read the scripture for us. Remembering this is the inspired word of God handed down to us through generations. This is God's holy word. And this is what that word says. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there, was, there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and 
because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put your sin away. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. If you would pray with me. Father, it is easy for us to look at the sin of others. For us to, to point the finger out there. For us to look to passages like this. And look at David. And to, to in our hearts say. How dare he. To look at the sin of others and say. I, I can't believe they would do that. And yet in your grace and mercy. Father this morning. You put a mirror up before each of us. That we might look at our own hearts today. That we might consider how we have despised your word. How we have turned from your ways. It, it will take an act of the Holy Spirit to bring us to true conviction and repentance. And that's what we pray for. As we consider your word today. We ask for this. In all your grace and goodness. In Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1432, uh, a new law was put into place by Scottish Parliament. And it was a law aimed at dealing with a problem that was going on throughout Scotland at that time. The problem was that poachers would sneak onto other people's land and onto the king's land and would kill animals, most likely deer, and would take them for themselves. And so they wanted to, to pass a law to make it very clear that you can't do this to, to stop these poachers for their illegal activity. And so the law read that the offender could be charged and taken to court if they were caught red-handed. 
is the first time that phrase caught red-handed appeared in print. It's where we go back to see the origin of it. And what it meant in that situation was quite literally a person caught red-handed. It implied that the person who was poaching, the person who was killing the animal, they would have the blood of the animal on their hands. And if they were caught with the blood of the animal on their hands, then that's all the evidence that was needed to convict. That evidence that they were guilty. That that evidence of the blood on their hands, they had been caught red-handed. It's an indication of their guilt. It's interesting how that same phrase is still with us today and how it carries so much of that same meaning. When someone is caught red-handed, they're, they're caught in the act. The evidence is clear. Their guilt is apparent. And so when the, the video footage appears of the thief in action stealing something, we said well, they were caught red-handed. And when the text messages and the emails reveal the cheating spouse, we say they were caught red-handed. And when the financial receipts, the, the paper trail, point the finger at the worker who was stealing from the boss or stealing from the company, we say they were caught red-handed. Or in the case of King David, when the woman that he had taken from another is pregnant and they have a child, when her husband suddenly is killed on the battlefield. Well, there is evidence of guilt. Because David has been caught red-handed. There is blood on his hands. And it is evident, to us at least, as we're reading the story unfold. But it's evident to others leading up to chapter 12. It was evident, at least in part, to Bathsheba. as She's aware, at least in part, of David's sin. It was evident to Joab, the commander of David's army, who was ordered by David to put Uriah on the front of the battlefield and to pull away from him that he might die. It was evident to the Lord. The Lord knew all and saw all. And where we left off at the end of chapter 11, we read that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Because in the Lord's eyes, regardless of what others knew at this point, David had been caught red-handed. Literally with blood on his hands. And so now David is going to be dealt with. And now God is going to deal with David's sin. And as we walk through the first half of this chapter, we're going to look at how God deals with David's sin in hopes that we might better understand how God deals with our sin. That we don't just look out there at others, that we don't just look in here at David, but that we look at our own lives and our own hearts. And that God in his mercy and grace and goodness would reveal to us our own sin. That we might flee from it and might repent. So we'll begin by looking at the first point there in your outline. The reminder here that, number one, the Lord pursues us when we sin. The Lord pursues us when we sin. We see this all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve who in their sin they, they hid from God. And yet what did God do? He came after them. And we should be so grateful today that when we sin, when we try to cover our sin, when we run from God, God pursues us as well, doesn't he? And what a great and marvelous thing that is to be pursued by a loving God, a merciful God. But a God who deals with our sin nonetheless. 
So as we come to this chapter, we're reminded of that. And that's important because at this point in the story, if we're just following along, if we've not read ahead, if we don't know what's coming, then to us it can appear like David's literally gotten away with murder. I mean, time has passed. It's easy for us just to read verse to verse and kind of picture this as Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. It's all happening within a few days. But if you read here, you see very clearly that months have passed, perhaps even years have passed at this point. That the child has been born. David commits this sin with Bathsheba, puts Uriah to death, and then perhaps a year or more goes by until we get to this point. The child that's conceived is born, and it seems like David has gotten away with murder. And so it's easy for us to come to chapter 12 and think, at this point David has no guilt, no shame, that, that he's just gotten away with it, he's moved on. And yet, as I mentioned before, when we look to the Psalms, we get a bit more insight to what's going on in David's heart. We began earlier by looking at Psalm 32, the first two verses. But let me read to you the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. And I think this was written very much in the context of what's happening here. David writes this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I think when we put the pieces together here, we see that what appears to us to be a situation where David's gotten away with it, where David's not even thinking about it, that David really privately is struggling with this sin, that he is burdened with this sin, that he is weighed down by this sin, and yet he still remains silent. He's unwilling to repent. He's unwilling to confess. He's still hiding and holding on to what he perceives to be a secret sin that no one else, or at least not many other people, really know about. But God's going to deal with him. And he's going to do that through Nathan. And Nathan, here's the prophet. I'll remind you of the role of the prophet. You had... That the role of the priest, the priest was the one who would go before God on behalf of the people. The prophet was the one who would go to the people on behalf of God. And so here we have the words of the prophet, which are the words of the Lord. That this is God speaking directly to David through the prophet Nathan. And he does it through telling him a story. Now when we read this, again from this perspective, it's easy for us to look at it and say, well, this is, he's making up a story, this is a parable of some sort. But as you read it verse by verse, you see that he never says anything like that. The indication here when he comes to David is that he's bringing before him a situation for David to judge as king. And David likely hears this story and envisions that this is really going on in his kingdom and that this needs to be dealt with and that he as the king needs to pass judgments on the offense. He tells him about two men. A rich man and a poor man. Now the rich man had endless flocks and herds. If he needed an animal to prepare, he, he could pick from among the many. Probably wouldn't miss it if one was gone. And yet then you have the poor man. Well, with this one little ewe lamb. And he kind of paints the picture of how this wasn't just uh, livestock to this man. This wasn't just a Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner to him. This, this was part of his family. In fact, he says that it was like a daughter to him. And so you get the sense here of what's going on. 
Here's this poor man, and here's the only lamb he has, and here's this rich man with many he can choose from. And then a, a traveler comes to the rich man's home. Now, in the context of David's day, this would not be an unfamiliar situation. Sojourners, travelers, when they would come through and they would stay at a home, it would be the expectation of the person hosting them to provide a place for them to stay and to provide meals for them to eat. And so the, the, the picture here would not be out of place. This would be very normal in David's day. But what's not normal is that this rich man who could have taken from any of his herd that he goes and steals the one young lamb from the poor man. That would not be common. That would be a great offense. And as Nathan tells this story to David, David responds to it as a great offense. Now you understand at this point in salvation history, God has given his people the law. And the law dealt with situations just like this. And so you can go back to Exodus chapter 22 and you can read the law that applies directly to this situation that David is now called to pass judgment over. Exodus 22 verse 1, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And so the law was in place. It was very clear. This man had committed this offense. He had stolen this sheep. And so his offense, the consequence of it would be he would have to pay back the poor man fourfold. And so that's what David was called to do. He's called to pass that judgment. But notice the very first thing he says the rich man deserved. He says that he needs to pay back fourfold. But the very first thing he says is the man who has done this, he deserves to die. Now that is not what the law required. But that's what the anger of the king demanded because he saw such a gross injustice. And just a side note. Consider here, David... In the depth of his guilt, with blood on his hands, consider the anger of his heart and how he's passing judgment on others. And then think about how easily we do the same thing, don't we? But we can be privately unrepentant. We can be spiritually dried up. We can be at a place in our faith where there's, there's, there's no fellowship between us and the Lord, where there's no repentance in our life over sin. And in those moments, we can be some of the most judgmental and critical people of the sins of others. In fact, if you find this morning in your heart a, a critical spirit, if you find that there's someone in your life or just someone out there that you tend to be so quick to pass judgment on, consider that may be an indication, not always, but it may be an indication that there's something in your life you're not dealing with. I mean, that's why Jesus makes it clear before we can remove the speck from our brother's eye, what do we have to do? <laughs> Take out the log from our own eye? Deal with our own sin? It doesn't say we're not to deal with the sin of others. The scripture actually calls us to judge the sin of others. But we start by judging ourselves. Notice that's not what David's doing. He looks at this man. He looks at his sin and says he deserves to die for it. Now the indication here at this point in the story would be that David is completely clueless that Nathan's talking about him. But I wonder who else is there that's not clueless. I mean, chances are Nathan comes to David on a normal, ordinary day where David's gathered in his court and there's all kinds of people around him. 
I wonder if Bathsheba's there. Now we don't know uh, if Bathsheba knew the depths of everything that David had done, but likely she had put some pieces together. And so at this point, as Nathan is telling this story, it probably takes all the self-control she can muster not to look at David and say, he's talking about you. You're the man, David. But she doesn't do that. She, she remains silent. There were probably others there, like Joab, the commander of David's army. Joab had been on the battlefront when he received that note uh, through the hands of a soldier and was told that Uriah needed to be put on the front lines and be put to death. Now, we don't know what Joab knew or didn't know at that point. Chances are he doesn't know why David wants Uriah dead. He just knows David wants Uriah dead, and so he makes sure Uriah dies. But at this point, perhaps a year later, as he's watching his king, and among his many wives, there sits Bathsheba, and as he can hear their son running, or maybe not running, but crying from a room next door, he likely has put the pieces together. And so, as Nathan's telling this story, Joab, too, likely is sitting there thinking, David, he's talking about you. You're the man. But Joab doesn't say anything. And perhaps there were others there. Perhaps Ahithophel. I mentioned Ahithophel to you before because he was likely Bathsheba's grandfather. This is the same Ahithophel, and you connect the family trees together like we did a couple weeks ago, then then he was the man who was David's most trusted counselor. It makes sense he would have been there with him in his court when Nathan comes to bring a situation before him that he's to pass judgment over. And, and he's probably putting these pieces together right there. And as he hears this story, it's likely becoming clear to him that Nathan's talking about David. And he in his heart is likely saying, David, you're, you're, you're the man. But he too remains silent. God in his grace doesn't leave David in silence because he's brought him Nathan. And Nathan's not just there to share with him a story to make a point. Nathan is there to make sure the point is made. Which brings us to the next point there in your outline, point two. The Lord disciplines us when we sin. The Lord disciplines us when we sin. Nathan's not just there to help David see that he is the man. He's there to help David understand the consequence now of his sin. And the discipline of the Lord that will now be upon him. So while all others are silent, David says to David, You are the man, David. Well, what is apparent to everyone around you hearing this story is that you are the guilty offender. That you're the one who took from the poor man. That you're the one who could have had... Any of the wives that you already had. But no, you had to go take the wife of Uriah. And not just take Uriah's wife. But put him and others to death. You are the guilty party, David. There is blood on your hands. And you've been caught red-handed. And as a result, there's going to be a consequence. David has not gotten away with murder. Time has passed. It seems like he has, but no, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and now the Lord will bring his discipline among David. 
Nathan tells David to remember all that the Lord's done for him. Notice that he starts here by painting the picture for David that while he has sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against Uriah and he sinned against the people to first and foremost consider how he has sinned against God. How he is in a covenant relationship with God and how his sin is rebellion against God and disobedience of God. He has despised the word of the Lord. I mean, just consider that for a moment. It's likely that David, as he is looking through the window at Bathsheba and lusting after her, that in his mind he's not thinking, well, I really despise God's word, so here's what I'm going to do. It's likely that after his sin with Bathsheba, when he gets that message from her that she's pregnant, that he's not sitting there thinking, you know, I just hate God's word so much, so here's what I'm going to do. It's likely that when he hatches this scheme for Uriah to come home and to try to make things appear like this child is Uriah's and it falls apart and doesn't work and he comes up with another plan to kill Uriah, it's likely in that moment that David's first and foremost thought is not, well, I just hate God's word so much, here's what I'm going to do. But friends, what, what we're learning as this passage is unpacked is that, that our sin... And our disobedience, whatever the temptation, whatever the cause, the, the root issue of it is a failure to trust in God and to obey His Word. That's where it all starts. And in order for Adam and Eve to look at the fruit of the tree and see that it was attractive to the eyes and to take a bite of it, where that starts is not trusting in what God had said already. And for you and I, every time we sin, the root of that sin is a failure to trust in the goodness of God and to walk in obedience to His Word. What David did here was despise the Word of the Lord. He did, verse 9 says, what was evil in the Lord's sight. And now Nathan says that the Lord will discipline him for his sin. There's going to be a consequence. And what a consequence it will be. And we will walk through this consequence for the remainder of our study in 2 Samuel. There's going to be great violence and death in David's family. And that will certainly come to pass. Verse 11, David's family is going to turn against him. There's going to be great immorality as a consequence of David's immorality. We're going to see this too among his own children soon come to pass. And then look at verse 12. The Lord tells David through Nathan, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. I mean, consider the gravity of that statement for a second. What, what David had done, David thought to an extent was secret. I mean, surely there's, there's people who knew. I mean, there were people who saw Bathsheba come into his home. He, he sent for her and took her. There's, there's people involved in his sin. But, but there's a massive cover up here. And so for the most part, David looks at his sin. And, and he sees his sin in secret. And God says, well, this, this thing you did in secret, it's going to become very, very public in how I deal with it. 
It's a reminder to us, friends, that God deals with our sin. And that which we think is private sin is often dealt with in a very public consequence. And if we don't bring our sin into the light, God most certainly will bring our sin into the light. And that's what we see him do here for David. And that's what we see him do in our own lives. And so often when we refuse to repent and our sin grows greater and greater and goes deeper and deeper and we consider it more hidden and it gets darker than when it is exposed, it just blows up. And the consequence is great. Just this week, I was talking to a, a friend in ministry and he shared with me about a, a mutual pastor that we both know. He had to resign from his church recently because it was discovered that he had been having an affair with someone in his church for, for years. It went on for years in secret. It was hidden. I don't know all the details. I don't want to know all the details. I can only imagine, though, the steps that were taken to hide this relationship for, for years from this pastor's wife, from this pastor's children, from this pastor's church, from the other person's family, and all that was taken, all, all the secrets. And then, when it came to light, it just blew up. He lost everything. Everything. And friends, that's, that's what sin does to us. It's not just some bumper sticker slogan that sin costs us more than we thought we would pay and takes us farther than we thought we would go. It's the reality of what sin does. And if you think for a moment that you can tame it or keep it in secret... You are self-deceived. And friends, that's, that's so often what happens. We just deceive ourselves. I went to this pastor's church's website and just, I don't know why, I was just curious. I wondered, what, what was the last sermon he preached before this sin became public? And it was a sermon on sexual immorality. And I, I ask myself, how, how do you preach a sermon on the very sin that you're hiding in secret and committing in that time? How, how can you be that self-deceived? And then I looked in the mirror. How do we do it? The same way we breathe every day. We just do it. And friend, if you don't realize this now, you better hear this. It comes so natural to us. I mean, think of how often you will say something that's not true just to make yourself look better. Think of how when caught in a lie, you'll tell another lie. And you don't have to go and scheme it or sketch it out or read a book on how to do it. It's just natural. Think of how quickly... Our effort and desire in response when something we're doing that's wrong is about to be exposed, how quickly we try to cover it up. Let me ask you a question. 
How many of you, when driving down the interstate and exceeding the speed limit, and when you come over the hill, and you're going 10 miles over, 15 miles over, 20 miles over, and you notice a state trooper's car, how many of you pull over, knock on their window and say, You got me. I was doing the wrong thing. Go ahead and write me my ticket. Thanks for doing such a good job. How, has anybody here ever done that? Just making sure there's no hands. I don't. Anybody? Now, what, what do you do and what do I do? We hit the brake. We, we suddenly pretend like we always drive the speed limit. <laughs> Maybe we go five miles under and, and we just 10 and 2. And we're just looking straight ahead and looking in the rear view mirror, looking straight ahead, look at the rear view mirror. And give us about five, ten miles down the road. What do we do? Start pushing on that gas again, don't we? Until something else jolts us and makes us take our foot off. Friends, that, that, is, that is the natural impulse of a sinful heart. We, we, at first response, we try to hide, we try to cover and God, in his grace towards us this morning, has put a state trooper around every corner. He is shining on our dark, sinful life, the light of his word, that, that this private sin that may be very small right now, that we might expose it and deal with it before it becomes so deeply rooted that when exposed, it costs us everything. What David did in private would not stay in private. The consequence would be so public and so severe. But God was still good. And God was still merciful. And while David despised God's word, God did not despise his own word. God does not look upon David and say, Well, as a result of your sin, that covenant that I made with you, it's null and void now. No, God remains true to his word to David just as he remains true to his word to you and I. And that's, I mean, I don't know if you know, that, that's really good news for us. Because we, we fall short all the time. And could you just imagine for a second what a terrible situation that would be if every time we fell short and every time we sinned, God looked upon us and said, well, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain, so all bets are off. There, there'd be no hope for us. But thanks be to God that our covenant with God is held in the hand of God. <laughs> so Jesus said, you're in my hand, you're in the Father's hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. And so we see this picture of God's goodness. And when there, point three, that the Lord forgives us when we repent. The Lord forgives us when we repent. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, perhaps as we were going through 1 Samuel and, and you knew ahead about 2 Samuel, maybe some of you, when you were looking at that, wondered about Saul and thought, well, well, gosh, I mean, Saul, he didn't obey God, but what was his disobedience rooted in? He, he improperly offered a sacrifice he shouldn't have. He didn't follow through on God's commands. He wasn't perfectly obedient to God. But I would imagine for a moment if you put Saul and David at a table and you say, okay, guys, uh, here's pen and paper. R write down all your offenses. <laughs> that there's nothing about David's list that would make us go, well, Saul's so much worse here. We might even do the, the opposite, wouldn't we? 
David's the adulterer and the murderer. And so we look at that and we, we're tempted to think, well, what? man, Saul got the raw deal here. But we need to understand something, that the way that these men responded to their sin, when exposed, David repents and Saul doesn't. Now, just to take a step back for this, even if David didn't repent, God can do whatever God wants to do. God, God can show forgiveness to one another. That's, God can do whatever God wants to do. But, but I do think we can see a difference here in the response of these two sinful kings. A lack of repentance in one and true repentance in the other. David says to Nathan, truly, in a repentant way, I've, I've sinned against the Lord. And then there's, there's genuine fruit of that. That was lacking in Saul's life. I've sinned against the Lord. Pastor David read for us earlier, Psalm 51. In verse 4 of Psalm 51, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I, I've read that verse and I've often thought, man, I wonder, I wonder what Uriah thinks of that. You know? Wait a second, you, you killed me. You know? and I wonder what Bathsheba thinks of that. I wonder what Joab and the people of Israel think of that, that here David is saying, well, no, it's only against God that I've sinned. But we have to understand, David's not saying that in some flippant way to say that, that I haven't sinned against Bathsheba and that I haven't sinned against Uriah. In fact, I think what David's saying here is that as a murderer and an adulterer and a deceiver, I have sinned and my sin principally and foremost is against you and you alone, O oh God. And, and there's a massive step that takes place in our own personal growth and faith when we understand that about our sin. That, that when you sin against another, it's, it's not just that person you sin against, that your sin against them is a sin against God. That, that every sin you and I commit is first and foremost a sin against God. R.C. Sproul said it, very well many times when he would speak of God's glory and holiness and our sin. He said it this way, every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. You and I have been caught red-handed. And our offense is treason. We, we have turned from our king. We have despised his word. And we need to repent. And the good news of the gospel and the picture we see here is that when we genuinely do repent, God forgives. Here we see the fruit of that in David's life. And especially as we unpack the Psalms. Psalm 51 in particular. Where we see David's repentance. And we see the fruit of that repentance. And it helps us to see that without genuine repentance. There is no forgiveness. And this really gets at the heart of the issue. I think so many of us have. Because we think we can just you know. Well I said I was sorry. Well you're supposed to forgive and forget. But let's just move on. 
And so often those statements come from a heart that's not truly repentant. They come from a heart that just doesn't want to talk about it anymore. And doesn't want to deal with our own guilt. But true, genuine repentance leads us to the fruit of repentance. And the fruit of the repentance is, I want to get as far away from that sin as I can possibly get. Even if it means I cut off my hand and gouge out my eye. I want to get away from it. Nathan sees David's repentance, and I believe understands at this point that it's genuine. And as the prophet speaks for the Lord, says, The Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. And so the picture we have here is David repents, and the Lord forgives him. You shall not die. I mean, remember again what David's first response was when he hears the story of a man stealing a, a sheep, a lamb? Well, he deserved to die. <laughs> no, David, you deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. God says to Adam and Eve, on the day that you, you do this, you shall surely die. That's what we deserve. But God in his grace towards Adam and Eve and his grace towards David and his grace towards you and I this morning. David doesn't die. Not in that moment. But there will be a consequence for what he's done. And that's where I'll leave us this morning. David's repentance did not remove the consequence of his sin. Nathan says to him, Nevertheless, verse 14, Because of this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child that is born to you shall die. That, that's a heavy hand. <laughs> And there's a lot to unpack there. And we're, we're going to look at that next Lord's Day. But for now, I hope you just get a glimpse of where this takes us. <coughs> David's repentance doesn't remove David's consequence. You, you can say you're sorry and genuinely be sorry all day long for getting caught speeding. You're still going to get the ticket, pay the fine. And you should. Our repentance doesn't take away the consequence for our sin. And if you are to sketch out David's life and his reign, you will find he has been to the mountaintop and it's all downhill from here. The sword is going to come to his house. His family will be a mess. And immediately, his child's going to die. But consider this. As a result of David's sin, his son dies. As a result of my sin and your sin, the Son of God dies. That there was blood on the hands of David. There was blood on the hands of Jesus. David's blood on his hands was his guilt. The blood on Jesus' hands is our guilt. His hands were pierced for our transgressions. And by his stripes we have been healed. Friends, the good news of the gospel this morning is that one day we can either stand before the Lord caught red-handed and pay the eternal consequence for our sin or we can put our trust and hope in the red hands of Jesus whose blood has been shed for us, whose righteousness covers us, who calls us and invites us to repent and to trust in Him. So to bring our guilt and our shame and our 
sin before the cross and experience what it means to be cleansed and cleaned and made new. It's a tremendous, tremendous offer. And yet many in our sinful hearts will still refuse it. And so this day, I plead with you. Today is the day of salvation. God in His grace has put you in this moment that the light of the gospel might shine brightly on the sin of your heart and mine. So let's repent and let's trust in Jesus and let's be made new. You would stand together as I pray for us in response to God's word. Father, we indeed have been caught red-handed. We, we are guilty. We have all sinned and fall short of your glory. The wages of our sin indeed is death. But you demonstrate your love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were red-handed, Jesus died for us. His hands were made red so that ours could be made clean. So help us to trust in Jesus. Help us to hope in Jesus. Help us to live our lives for Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Church family and guests, we're going to respond to God's word now as we sing about the grace of God that is greater than all our sin. And as we sing, if God is leading you to come this morning and make a a public profession that you trust in Jesus and to, to follow through in a believer's baptism to start the process of joining this church family. If you just need somebody to pray with you, I'll be available. Others are as well. So let's respond to God's word now as we come and as we sing.